Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. O-G. Make some noise! <laughs> In 1989, at the age of 16, my next guest released his debut album, Kwame the Boy Genius, featuring a new beginning. Three more albums after that, as an MC, and tons of producer credits. Kwame is still going. Kwame, welcome to Library to Mind Nikel. Thank you. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. Cool. So, as I mentioned, at the age of 16, you released your first album. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think what people write, that a big thing about that album is that you put featuring a new beginning. Yeah. Um, which you also produced with Love Bug. Um, the album. Uh, well... Go ahead. Okay, go on. I'll um, let you finish. And I was going to say, who were A New Beginning and why have them on your title? The so so l- let's clear one thing up. Herbie Lovebug did not produce on the album at all. Um, and it's not a, a disparaging remark toward Herbie. Right. Um, Herbie was the hottest producer at the time. He got the deal at Atlantic Records, and the deal was for Herbie to produce the album. Mm-hmm. Herbie had to deal with Dana Dane, Kid and Play, Salt and Pepper, Sweet Tea, and I was literally the last guy on a totem pole. Um, I I was teaching myself how to produce. I didn't understand fully what a producer was, but what I did understand was if I did not be proactive, I would not come out. Mm. So my proactivity allowed me turned me into a producer, which allowed me to have a release in 1989. And Herbie, you know, 48 Laws of Power, let somebody else do the job for you and take right. the credit. Um, <laughs> right. Herbie oversaw it, made sure it was up to code, which he did. He definitely came in and made sure that the things that I was producing um, was sonically correct. And my direction as an artist was sonically correct. So I never call him my producer, but I definitely call him my teacher. Mm. 16 years old, I try to think what I'm doing at 16, and I have no clue. How did you know what you, that this was your calling? Um, I think I knew before 16, I knew that I always wanted to do music, period. Like, um, my family has a somewhat of a musical background. So, for example, my grandmother and grandfather on my mother's side, my maternal grandparents, um, my grandfather used to run with Lionel Hampton mm. and Jimmy Dorsey. So if anybody knows classic jazz, he, he ran with them. And by running with them, he 
he ran into my grandmother, who was a jazz singer. Um, you know, they got married, had babies. She stopped singing. Uh, but he always kept those musical connections, which resulted in Lionel Hampton purchasing my first drum set when I was nine. So I knew I was I was a very musical kid, and that was on one end. On another end, uh, my father ran with um, a jazz, uh, 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 like an um, underground jazz guy named Abdullah Ibrahim. So all, for you hip-hop heads, Abdullah Ibrahim is the father of Jean Grey. So I've known Jean Grey oh, since wow. the day she was born. So, <laughs> so I know her real name, put it like that. So um, Before the tattoos. Yes, way before the tattoos. <laughs> My memory of Jean is a little baby in diapers running around <laughs> acting crazy. So, so um, running around with Abdullah introduced me to performance because he would be there at sound check he would be there you know at shows and they would allow me to run on stage at three four five years old play the drums and semi-perform with them so music is always there's always a musicality with with me and 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 you know i took piano i played the trumpet i played the drums and then 1979 hit and everything changed from that point you know, I'm a six-year-old kid playing with Star Wars figures and on the radio, Rapper's Delight comes on. And then from that moment, it was a different story. Because from that moment, before that moment, it's, okay, I like music, I like to play music, I like to play the drums, but I have no thoughts of anything. Right. From Rapper's Delight, The Breaks by Curtis Blow and... Actually, the the record, which is my favorite record to this date, "Freedom" by Furious Five. Um, that was the moment that I said, "I want to do that." I don't know what that is. I guess I have to change my name to Grandmaster Kwame Kwam or something. <laughs> but that is what I want to do, and so I went down the rabbit hole. I was a breakdancer. I was a graffiti artist. I was a beatbox. I was a DJ. I went down the hip hop cultural vortex and that's how i knew what i wanted what was i guess what was the reaction from your family when you went started to go down that rabbit hole well, it was just okay he just has a little hobby you're gonna break your neck stop <laughs> dancing like that your feet are gonna be disfigured stop wearing your sneakers untied um why do you have to wear your hat like this or why do you want these big old gazelle glasses or you know it's yeah. it was just like it was a they just thought it was something that kids were into but the good thing about my parents you know being musical in, musically inclined parents they allowed me and they encouraged my my rabbit hole journey like my father you know I'm a if anybody knows about me, I'm a huge toy comic book collector, and he knew something was up when all of a sudden I didn't want the new Star Wars stuff, mm. and I asked for turntables and a mixer, and he was like, "Wait, you don't want this X-wing fighter?" <laughs> I, gotta, I, I, I actually have something to do, and they're looking at me like, "What?" You know, and me spending hours in the room, not playing video games but literally writing 
songs. And and um and I think to to end that because I can be long winded, but to end that thing, the the nail, the final nail in the coffin is Slick Rick. Mm. Um because when I heard Lottie Dottie and not the record, I'm talking about the tape being passed around a year and a half before the record. I'm hearing Lottie Dottie, I'm hearing Treat Her Like a Prostitute, I'm hearing all these different stories. That reminded me of me, or it reminded me of the type of rapper and the type of demeanor that I felt like I had or wanted to have as an adult. And I was like, Slick Rick is my guy, man. Like, oh my God. And I was just like obsessed and I remember, and this is like, I'm 13, 14 years old at the time. And I remember going to City College. And I, and I got on the phone. I was on the pay phone telling my father when to pick me up. And um, out walks Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick. And it's just me and them in the room. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, like, Dougie Fresh has this velour <laughs> fila suit on. And Slick Rick has, you know, this cool hat on and his his shades and you know he was dressed he dressed like how I dress and I'm like yo that's like oh my god you know there's no videos there's no pictures of these guys so when you see him you're like oh my goodness and then he gets out in the audience first Dougie gets on and then Dougie gets on with a, a magician a magician like the hip hop magician I don't even know his name was Kenny something <laughs> I tease Doug about it every day um, and the magician starts doing tricks to the hip hop beats or whatever <laughs> And then Slick Rick comes out, and the girls go stupid. And I was like, that's it, period. I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to do that. I can, I, now I can visualize it, because before then, I've never been to a rap show. I just, you know, I had every record, you know, that was out. I was definitely a record collector and, and stuff like that, but this is the first show. And seeing that and seeing how cool Rick was and how all the girls... I was like, oh no, that's that's me. That's me when I grow up. There's no way out of it. And and you know, and from there I just actively pursued it. So how'd you find how'd you find your voice? Like how'd you find the Kwame that nineteen eighty nine we were introduced to? How did that were you did you did you have moments of science maybe sounding like other people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I sounded I was I was heavily in, influenced by Slick Rick on one end and Cool G-Rap on the other end. Now, the neighborhood that I lived in, I personally, you know, G-Rap was from the neighborhood. You know, it was much older. You know, it was G-Rap, Kid and Play, Salt and Pepper, Herbie Lovebug, Eric B. They all was from the neighborhood. But G-Rap, his rap style, I was a very lyrical person. And I loved being lyrical. So I think that was heavily influenced by G-Rap. But I love to tell stories, and that's heavily influenced by Rick. So my thing was a little amalgamation of them both, um, depending on the situation. You know, when I, you know, if it was like a a, a, a battle situation, the G rap would come out, and right. I would, you know, go at them lyrically. If it was a entertaining situation, like rap, uh, I don't know, rap talent shows or rap. Uh, uh, not battles, but what would it be like? A, um, when you win a prize or something or whatever, oh. I would do my best yeah. story rhyme, and I was very good at both. So 
it wasn't an issue. You know, I, you know, I don't think I was necessarily teased about it because I was very good at doing those styles. But I definitely was throwing the, the slick Rick English accent on and all this other stuff. And then when Herbie started producing Dana, I started like I was like the Dana Dane groupie man. Like <laughs> I would, I knew that Dana would be coming on the train. And where we live in Queens, it's like a what they call a, a dual transportation zone. So you would have to take a train and then a bus. Or you would just have to walk like a good two miles to get into East Elmhurst from Corona. So I was like, okay, well, Dana's supposed to be here at 2. So that means he would have to get off the train at around like 1.15. I'll be at the train at 1 and just <laughs> happen to run into Dana. And then walk the whole two miles with Dana just all in his neck about, he'd be like, oh, my God, this little kid, will you stop bothering me? But Dana was real cool, and Dana and I developed a real cool relationship, and I felt like that was my validation card to continue with the story rhymes and stuff like that. And seeing that Dana was a little bit different than Rick, it's like, okay, where do I put my flair onto it? And, you know, so I started finding my voice doing that because now I started to know the people that I'm emulating. And I didn't want G-Rap to think that I'm trying to be like him. And I didn't want Dana to think that I was trying to be like him. So, you know, it was just like, okay, lose the English accent. And tell things from your perspective. Mm-hmm. And my perspective was the kid wishing he could be like my song, one of the big boys or whatever, and wanting to be that, but I'm still stuck in this place. And I'm like the odd man out. Where Rick was very braggadocious, Dana was very braggadocious. I wasn't. I was just I was the odd man out. I was the I was the nerd. I was the, the goofy kid and Tell the stories from that perspective. The last component, I had the worst rap name ever. My rap name was Sweet Daddy Jazzy K GQ. That's one name. One name. And or they would call me KGQ. That was the abbreviated name. And Dana one time, Dana and Salt sat me down. And Dana was like, uh, that Jazzy K, Sweet Daddy bullshit is the worst name I've ever heard in my life. Now, here, my hero is telling me this. He's like, look, man, your name is Kwame. I don't know anybody with that name. Right. Just use your name. And I'm like, well, Rick does it. Dana does it. I don't want to be Kwame Kwam. He said, yo, just Kwame. It's very unique. Just do it. And And... Salt was like, yeah, man, you're making your own beats. You've got these songs. Like, you're like a, a little boy genius or whatever. And I'm like, boom. Kwame, the boy genius. That was it. Now, to answer now, a new beginning. I was, still am. Outside of rap, I was a huge Prince fan. And Morris Day in the Time, Prince in the Revolution. Like, I always wanted a band. I never wanted to come out with just me and the DJ. I always wanted a band. And a lot of times in my early performances, I would perform with bands. Um, but a new beginning was going to be the hip-hop answer to that. Because everybody in a new beginning was supposed to play a role, a musical role. So if it, And since it was hip-hop, 
the original New Beginning, we had a beatbox, we had a DJ, we had a singer, a male singer, and a female singer, and then a hype man and dancers. That was going to be the group, A New Beginning. And I thought it was just so cool that instead of having interchangeable people on stage, you show up with a squad. Right. You show up with a group, you show up like a unit, and you show up in a unit that's a unique individual that are unique individuals that still fit your style. So like native tongue, that was a unit and they all pretty much looked and rolled in the same manner. So a new beginning, that was our unit. And it was like, you know, we, we're trying to be something new in hip hop. We don't want to be the guy with the fat rope chain. We don't want to be the guys in the, in the sweatsuits, the Dapper Dan suits or anything like that. We want to be perceived as the misfits, the different kids, you know, because that's what all the music is about. We're the different kids in school. We're not the kids that get picked on because we know the thugs, we know the nerds, but we're the kids in the middle somewhere that sit at our own table and you just, you know, you hang out with us or you leave us alone. It's one of those things. And so everything was based in that high school mentality, that click perspective. So... You know, as a 10-year-old kid, I'm watching you on TV, on the box. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, I mean, you know, I have to say the polka dots stand out, yeah, right? Yeah. right? And I'm sure you've been asked this many yeah. times. But how is that decision made for you in terms of fashion? Well, it's not necess- it wasn't a, a, a deciding factor. It was, that's how I dressed. That's how I dressed in high school. Um, like I said, to go back to what I was just saying, that was my stand apart. That was my, my you know, way of being an individual but then also it was a budgetary thing like if I had on a white shirt with black dots I can match a whole bunch of black and white (laughs) at the time so that's what was so funny about it we you know it wasn't a decision saying okay I'm gonna be the polka dot guy it was never that it was my coolest shirt to match up my coolest outfit that I could afford at 16 years old so that one polka dot shirt appeared on the back of my single cover. Then it appeared, no, it appeared on the front of my single cover, the back of my album cover, because that photo was taken the same day. It appeared as a pajama top in my first video. And then there was a black tie with white dots that go, went along with the shirt. So whenever the shirt appeared, the tie appeared. That was it. A shirt and a tie. Oh, and some socks to match because it matched the tie. The black and white polka dot socks. The very first show I did where people actually knew who Kwame was, everybody was dressed like that. From state to state to state to state. So it was like, you know, it became an expected thing. And my thing was, why not? Prince had purple. Right. I'm, you know, I'm pretty much doing a, a rap version of what Prince was doing. Why not? Why not have a signature? And then I turned it into a whole bunch of uh, adolescent uh, meanings behind polka dots. It was the worst. I had like so many like, I don't know, like uh, I like girls and I like to poke her dot. You know, like, <laughs> stupid stuff like that. Right. So, so it turned into things like that, but. You know, it was really just like a budget, low budget, trying to match one, two colors. 
right, so you, so you talking now, now, not to cut okay. you off, but no, the blonde streak in my hair was intentional, and that was because everybody had random flat tops, and my thing was, I'm not sure that you're gonna ever know what my music sounds like, but I will make sure whenever you see me, you won't forget what I look like, mm-hmm. because I. I always understood that a, a key to longevity as an artist is not just about the record. It's about the style. And I learned that with Kid and Play, being around them a lot. Nobody would remember what Play looked like, but everybody remembered what Kid looked like because his flat top was so distinct. Um, and I was like, well, I can't do what he's doing. I'll just throw a big old blonde streak in the middle and you're never going to miss that, you know, and... 30 years later, I see kids walking down the street with big old blonde streaks in their their hair. So, hey, something worked. Uh, You moved, you know, you talked about the early days in jazz and Lionel Hampton. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I read, you know, I read your allmusic.com biography. I hope it was correct. Well, something else that stands out is that uh, it says, like, quote, hanging out, as a kid, hanging out with Stevie Wonder. Oh, yeah. Um, what was well? Two things. Like, did you know, or did you, were you able to? I guess at that time, at the time as a kid, appreciate like who you no. were surrounded with. No. And then, when did that hit you? That kind of you realized, holy shit! I was I was a full grown adult. It's, you know, like Stevie Wonder. Let's using Stevie Wonder as an example. His music is just a normal part of my life. I do not remember a time where there wasn't Stevie Wonder playing in the background. Mm. Whether it was me as a baby, as a regular kid, as an adult, to this moment. There's never been a time where either the Intervisions album, the Talking Book album, the Songs in the Key of Life album, the Hotter Than July album has not been playing. And there's other albums around that, but those four... If I had to pick, okay, give me a top four album list, those were the top four, and then everything else falls under that. Right. So his brother Milton was dating my aunt. So Milton was always around. And it was like, okay, that's Stevie Wonder's brother, but also Uncle Milton, you know, right. play Uncle Milton or whatever. But I never, I never thought of it you know like he was like hey my brother gave you this harmonica and I'm like ah okay a harmonica you know whatever <laughs> like I'm not thinking about that and then Milton had given us tickets to see Stevie play at Radio City Music Hall it was like 1987 88 I remember sitting there and I was like literally the front row or the second row still not pay- not wanting to be there you know, I, I want to see Big Daddy Kane. Like, I do not want to see Stevie. <laughs> and then Stevie starts playing. My mother starts crying. I'm like, what the hell? And I just, you know, just turn around. And I'm in Radio City Music Hall, so the capacity is like 5,000 people. And I'm sitting I'm in the front row. And I'm like, it's got to cost some kind of money. Like, <laughs> And then I think it just all clicked. Like, you know, Stevie's like the greatest dude on the planet. You know, it's like, yeah. and, and, and 
And I don't have any kind of real personal interaction with him at all, to be honest with you. You know, outside of his brother and, and you know, the hookups for the for the tickets. And then it turns into something different because now his daughter runs, you know, the biggest R&B station in, in, in L.A. So, you know, I got to deal with that side of the, the spectrum as well. Um, uh, Stevie's very close with... Um, uh, my artist Vivian Green, and so it'll be random times we're in the car and Stevie on the calls. You know, it's, <laughs> it's things like that. But still, you know, I don't. How do I put it? This is another thing. I think when you do music, when you feel like you're of music, and you don't have any type of predisposition with you like I don't I can just recognize great musicians and leave it at that like I can sit next to Prince and be like oh shit Prince cool right oh shit Michael Jackson cool Janet Jackson you know because I'm like they may be at different levels but we just do the same thing we're just doing the same thing in different places at different times and at different pay rates but <laughs> but, but um you got to have that kind of thought about it because when you start thinking anything above that, your reactions aren't real. You know, you're, you're treating somebody in a different way that they may not, they might not even deserve to be treated, you know. Right. So it's like you got to, so anybody who ever I've worked with or been around or grown up around, I keep it like that. And I've always been like that. Um, when we talked before, we talked about uh, Elmhurst yeah. and uh, where you grew up and you mentioned the array of like artists that came from there. Yeah. Um, can you talk about the artists that did come from there, and why do you think, or why is there such a rich history of artists from that neighborhood? So the neighborhood, for anybody who knows the New York City area, anybody outside the New York City area, get a map, you look at Queens, and right next to LaGuardia Airport, there's two neighboring neighborhoods that pretty much act as one neighborhood. It's called East Elmhurst Corona. And... I want to say late 40s, mid to late 40s, I think you had a lot of artists that were in the New York City area living in Harlem or living in the city. And I think when economics and race relations started to improve for for black people in New York or just black entertainers, they started to move out to what we consider the suburbs. And a lot of entertainers moved to Queens, um, moved to that part of Queens because it's literally 10 minutes from the city. Um, you know, with no traffic, I can literally be in any part of the city 10, 15 minutes from that part of Queens. And um, pre-LaGuardia Airport, it was a lot of the homes were were waterfront properties as well. So if you were doing well at that time in the 40s, you know, it was kind of cool. You have a house off the water, you're in Queens, you're, you know, Queens was like a little sexy neighborhood, a sexy borough to be in outside of, you know, showing that you, you were established. Also, back to race, that area was very toler tolerant to interracial couples. So a lot of Black entertainers were, were in interracial marriages and stuff like that, and they moved there knowing that it wouldn't be an issue being there. 
Um, so you have that component as well. So the names that I can rattle off at the top of my head, you have Louis Armstrong lived there. Um, baseball legend Willie Mays lived there. Also, the Mets played right there. So, you know, he was on the Mets, so I, it, it makes sense to him to live there. Um, Ella Fitzgerald, Harry Belafonte, um, uh, an array of different actors and actresses, other other um, jazz, and you know, there's a lot of jazz greats. So I I can go down the rabbit hole of like obscure jazz artists that live there. Um, but one cool little factoid: there was there's a jazz artist named Jimmy Heath. Jimmy Heath is a um, jazz saxophonist. Um, his son is R&B um, legend um, Mtume, who made the most sampled R&B record of the 80s, Juicy Fruit, you know, Biggie's Juicy, and all. he made that record. And then Jimmy ended up being my landlord, so it was like... <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, you have you have a lot of artists that come out of Nancy Wilson. Um, uh, I want to, I can't, my mother would kill me because she like lives for this stuff. <laughs> and then, and then the eighties comes around. Oh, Martin Scorsese's from the neighborhood. Uh, Madonna lived in the neighborhood. She moved, when she moved to New York, she moved to the neighborhood. Uh, and so then the eighties, eighties show up and you have rap, a lot of rap history. So you have, like I said, Kid and Play, um, Eric B, Eric B and Rakim, Cool G Rap DJ Polo, uh, Herbie Lovebug. By coincidence, Herbie Lovebug's girlfriend is Salt, her best friend is Pepper, so they're always in the neighborhood. They might as well, Salt might as well have lived in the neighborhood. Um, you know, then you have myself. Then you have... Um, and then there's a neighboring little a neighborhood right after ours called Flushing. So if you want to expand it into Flushing, you have Large Professor. Um, also in Corona, you have you know his group, the main source. You have Beat Nuts um, that are in Corona. Um, Dress from Black Sheep is in Flushing as well. Um, so you have Royal Flush. You have Mike Geronimo, um, um, Nick the Exotic. A lot of so this, these are all all of us are in the neighboring three neighborhoods. So there's a lot of hip hop out of there, um, and I don't know. You know, I don't know. The neighborhood has changed drastically. Like, uh, um, drastic. It's 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 mostly Asian, Pan Asian, meaning you know whether it's Indian, Chinese, Korean, um, South American, Central American. Um, so you get it's just a lot of that now. So who knows what that neighborhood will produce right. from that those communities. Um you're obviously I mean like, like I said at the beginning, you're obviously introduced to us as an MC, but you know, now you're just an incredible producer. Thanks. Uh, you look at your credits and it's unbelievable. Uh who off the top, who influenced you not as an MC but as a producer? And are there Producers that you kind of currently follow, you know, on the age of social media and Instagram or Twitter, or just kind of follow closely to see what they're doing. Um, well, my heaviest influences as a producer are Stevie Wonder and Prince. That's top two, and Quincy Jones. Um, 
Quincy Jones is, of course, the go-to thing, but my thing with Quincy is a little bit deeper than that because I understand what I what I enjoy about Quincy is that what I try to achieve, he has achieved, like his production credits go from 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, right. 90s. That, to me, is a quintessential producer. Um, you know, I'm not into the hot dude with the hot beat. I'm never, there's no, so that goes into your social media, who do I follow thing. I don't follow any producer like that. Um, because most producers are era, you know, era centralized. They're like, okay, the dopest guy in the 90s was, uh, the dopest guy in the 2000s was, blah. like, I don't, I'm not into that. Like, I'm not here to, I don't, I don't want to be here for an era. You know, I'm, this is a career life choice. Right. You know, and with life choices, you make life changes. And so my first life choice was making golden era hip hop. Then it went into something else. And then it went into R&B. And then it went into film and television. So, you know, that's why I look at a guy like Quincy Jones. Um the influence of Prince and Stevie Wonder was is from an artist's perspective because I didn't, as an artist, I didn't know what a quote-unquote producer was. I just knew that my favorite records for my two favorite artists said written, produced, arranged by, and performed by Prince or mm-hmm. Stevie Wonder. And I knew that Prince got that from Stevie Wonder. So right. I'm like, I guess I got to do the same thing. You know, um... And then it turned into a disenfranchisement with, with, with hip-hop because I started to find that my favorite producers were fake. They were just slapping their names on some kid who's busting his ass in the room making a beat, and you're slapping your name on it, and now you got a hit record, and you're still the quote-unquote greatest producer alive at the time because you bought a $500 beat from somebody. Right. So a lot of hip-hop and R&B guys, I just don't respect. To be honest with you, I can't, I can't do it. And I don't know who's real and who's fake. And I think that in the hip-hop R&B world, let me take that back. I don't disrespect them. That's, that's a very poor choice of words. I don't, don't respect them. I respect that they found ways to be very rich and create longevity for themselves. So I can't not respect that. Um, I don't respect or I don't, I don't like the lack of craftsmanship. You can be an executive producer and let the, this new guy live and grow. Right. So I don't understand how age and money stops you from being creative. I just don't get it because I see 80-year-old jazz musicians every every day dope as hell. You know, singers, um, music, any other kind of instrumentalist, what, you can't make a beat because you're 40? Like, <laughs> what? You know, so I don't, I don't get that. Um, so it's kind of hard to follow. And then with the age of social media, I'm a, I believe that the creation of music should be a very special, private, sacred thing. 
because you're trying to you're putting your whole creativity out there. So I don't like to see producers making a new beat today, and they're on Instagram showing the beat, giving out yeah. this shit for free. Like, what is wrong? With <laughs> Why? When did you become a hoe? Like, what happened? That's whole moves to me. Yeah, I'm sorry. That that's pure whole move. And it's like because everybody tells you that you should do it to stay fresh. So if I lack following because of that, I'm never going to do that. If I'm showing music, it's for your consumption. You know, I don't, you know, unless I'm giving a tutorial about something or somebody's doing, that's cool. But, you know, you don't have to do all that. I, that, I, I don't know. It's a turn off for me. I'm sorry. And, you know, no disrespect to the producers that like to do that. You know, and they'll say, well, I just make another beat. Like, you're just putting your stuff out there to get jacked. Super jacked. Right. Like, why? You know, and I'm from that era. Like, you got to be original. You shouldn't jack anybody's thing. You know, come up with your own stuff. So I think that's the only old school thing that super sits with me. And I don't know. I just, you know. But there are people that I like. I do respect. You know, I respect, like, newer kids when I hear... When I hear, like, even, like, trap stuff that I don't necessarily mess with, but somebody, say, like, say, let's say a, a Mike Will. I respect that he created a sound that everybody likes to follow, right. you know? Um, and, and you know, my favorite producers, you know, throughout the years has always been, of course, a Primo, of course, Q-Tip, of course, um, uh, Pharrell, of course, Dre, when, like, Dre was really making his, his beats. Um you know, uh, there's been just a, a lot of different people that I that I appreciate, and I do appreciate when you come with your own sound. And I had a conversation with you about Dilla, that my appreciation for Dilla came later, after researching Dilla. I understood that Dilla had his own sound. I appreciated it for what it was at the time that it was, but I have an extra special appreciation for it now seeing how broad it was. And yeah. I appreciate the producer that tricks me. Right. I don't, and, and I don't appreciate the producer that tricks me because you took somebody else's beat and you put your name on it. <laughs> so what is your, and what does your production consist of? I mean, is it live instrumentals? Is it 808s? Is it samples? Or, you know, my, it, I think I try to, well, I, I try to make myself, I feel like I want to be a, like a tailor. And my production will consist of whatever the artist that's put in front of me requires. So if somebody just requires a, 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 an electro sound, I'm pulling out that. If it's an you know a classic like a contemporary R and B stuff, you know I try to find the elements that make that work. I want to be able to make things that custom fit to an artist, but yet. There's something classic about it. You know, like if I had to be anybody, I'm like the Ralph Lauren. I want to be Ralph Lauren of, of, or J. Crew of producers. Meaning, there's always, there's something contemporary, but there's always a classic fit to it. So when I say that, um, whatever the genre of music, I want to make sure that there is some sort of human element to it meaning whether it's a great keyboard player whether i'm playing a keyboard whether it's a drummer whether it's a real string player real guitar player something 
there's a human element to it because that gives it a classic feel. Um, the vibe of it can bring you back to a certain time, but yet feel modern at the same time. So even if it's 90s retro, 80s retro, 70s retro, 60s retro, I always want that that piece of something classic inside inside the track, no matter what it is. I want to ask you about um, Talib Kweli. Okay. Uh, you produced a track off of his eardrum album, Listen. Yep. Um, and I want to ask you about him because I always felt, and you read interviews with him, I've interviewed him myself, uh -huh. he's a very... He knows his music. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I mean, his what he grew up on. He he was very influenced by jazz, and um, and we're at a time. There's a question here. We are, we're at a time now where, like yourself, you grew up, like you said, you grew up on jazz. We're at a time and started to grow up on hip hop, but then we're at a time now where hip hop people, kids are growing up on rap music. Yeah. It's not necessarily jazz music. Yep. Um, as a producer, if you're, is it easier? Is it harder? to work with a musician or an artist that has grow, has grown up on just rap music versus like a Talib Kweli who's grown up on so much more other music? I think, well, working with somebody like a Talib, it's a mutual respect eye to eye thing. You can have a certain type of conversation. Working with a kid that just grew up on hip hop, it's a teacher student situation. So I think <clears throat> you you take it's a, it's a case by case basis, um, you know. With the times that I worked with Talib, I think Listen was the record that was released, but we did other records, um, and his manager at the time was a, you know was a good friend of mine. So we've all, we've been around each other, and um, the discussions that we have based on music, which result into music, like I said, it's from a equal playing field perspective. Um, I'm not going to say it's difficult. It's just different. Trying to work with a newer generation artist because a lot of times you have to weed through how serious this artist is. Now, to give you a better perspective, going back to Talib, let's just say Talib was a slacker. He's not, but just say he was. An artist like Talib who's a slacker, the things they slack off on would be maybe a woman, you know, maybe smoking, maybe drinking, but when they come to the studio, there's still a perspective right. that they'll have. They could be late. They could be, you know, slow to work. But they, they have a perspective and they know why they're working. Where a younger generation slacker, and I'm, I'm giving the worst case scenarios because the best case scenarios are all the same. Right. Somebody about their business, they, they're willing to listen, learn, and work. So... Worst case scenario, that slacker, there is a different element to slacking now because current rappers, they make 10 times more money. Right. They take 10 times more drugs and they have 10 times less of an education of the music that they're doing. 
So all they care about is being in the right now. And a part of being in the right now is a lot of slack time. So it's very difficult to make those kind of records. You know, when they get done, they get done. And I tried, I'm I'm not the person to, tr- to put myself in those arenas with those those type of records being made. And I don't know if this is answering your question, but it's just it's just a, such a different thing. And with a lot of money and a lot of idle time and a slacking mentality, you can only imagine the amount of work that does not get done. Now, on the flip side of that, there's a flip. People from maybe Talib's generation on back, or, you know, up into the mid to late 90s, we, from that generation, we had a, a set amount of songs and ideas and stuff that we just wanted to do. So we, when we reached our goal of doing that work, we go off into doing other things. With the new kid, it's a limitless amount of work they put in that is commendable. Like, you have kids that'll drop mixtapes every other week and then an album and then, you know, they'll have like 10 bodies of work within a year where somebody from an older generation was like, what do you mean 10 bodies of work? It took me three months to make this album and that's it. You know, I do shows and then I'll figure out another album in another two years. You know, these kids... Their their turnaround, and this is the the opposite side of the slacker generation, slacker person. These kids, even the slackers, do it. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that they have more of a a, a driving initiative, or does it mean that things are just easier for them? You don't have to sit there and think of a complex wordplay. You don't have to sit there and think of a complex subject matter, or you don't have to sit there as a producer going through hundreds of records to find sounds, to reconfigure the sounds and make up your own sounds. It's just there. Mm-hmm. You know, they all rap with each other. So it's like, you don't have to put together three verses anymore. You just say your verse and then two more of your boys will come in and they say their voice. And then you have a whole album of that. You know, most albums are full of features. Right, yeah. So it's like half the work is it's double the, it's double the content have to work so it's it's just it's so different man it's like the those type of artists like comparing a talib to a little somebody or a young somebody is just not gonna work so what i mean so what is what what was a what was the session like with talib for this i mean are you presenting beats to him and he's kind of picking and choosing or are you guys kind of well i think, beats I, together think or? I think um on one end Listen was something that was submitted to his manager, Corey. I had just submitted a bunch of tracks, and they came back. They wanted to do Listen. So when he got there, and it was, you know, it was it was a very chilled session because he was there. He came with his kids. You know, his kids now are, like, grown. So right. at that time, they were little. They were, like, 9 and 10 years old playing with toys on the floor while he's writing to the record. And as he's writing, I'm... The track I submit is just the bass. And then from there, we build on top of that. Well, I'm going to make this change here to fit this rhyme. I'm going to make this uh, uh, build up here to go with this hook. or you know, So things like that happen 
in the writing process. You know, I brought some live live instrument and instrumentation people there. I brought a, a flautist in, so the guy comes in with yeah, a flute, and 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 and. Talib was like, "What are you doing with this flute?" I was like, "Trust me, it's dope." <laughs> you know, because it was that jazz element that I knew that he was into, and then put that jazz element in there. Um, I believe I'm thinking about the record in my head. I believe after he left, I added live horns to it, and uh, just different little live instruments. The bass was live too, so I, I added live components to the record during and after his part was done just to give it depth because he's an artist that deserves depth in his records not you know high tech gives him records with depth all the time you know those are very dope records that he gets from people and um Kanye gave him records that were that had depth at that you know during that period um so I just thought it was you know the the right thing to do for that artist when you're working with the artists on an album and let's say I mean you, you didn't you didn't do the, the entire your drum album yeah. you did a track but when there's a concept to the album, like uh-huh. I feel like your drum was really about. I just listened to it this morning, so it's about the kind of Wally reproving himself, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, to who, tell people who he was. Uh-huh. Um, and he does it with the you know the VOs that the vocals of fans talking about him, whatever. Yep. Um, are you supposed to know that? Like, are you supposed to know the mission of the album? And then, how do you, if you do, how do you make ensure that? that you're reaching that mission with the beats you're making or the music you're making? Um, one thing I know about albums and the creation of albums, the mission always changes during the progression of the album. The worst place to be is the guy who starts yeah. in the beginning. You're never going to make the cut. It's very rare. So where I came in, I kind of came in toward the end because it was like we need a single. And I think that's where I came in. Um, so, you know, it was basically like, tell me the tone. I choose sometimes not to hear other people's records because I don't want to get subconsciously influenced. Right. But it's like, tell me the tone of the album, tell me the direction, tell me where you're trying to go. And it's usually a conversation with the artist. You know, say if it's, it could be two studio sessions, three you know, the first studio session is usually listening to music and talking. Studio session number two is you pick something you liked and you start writing and recording. Studio session number three is you had a week to listen to it and now you want to perfect it. And so we go into perfection mode. Um, so that's how that worked out. And I think most, mostly every project I've ever done has worked out that way. What I've never done, I would say if I've done, I would say 90% of my work has been artist to artist, you know, producer to artist, producer to somebody very close to the artist, and that's how I end up being on a project or artists reaching out to me. The A&R route, sending beats and going to the label and doing a beat meeting, for me, never works. It never works. They never get it. They look at me like I'm a Martian, and I never get the job. But artists understand you can talk to an artist. Like that's the I think that's the unique thing about me as an, as a producer. I can speak to an artist, and um, in their language, and I don't come across like a suit. You know, I just you know I speak in their language, and we create from that point. Uh, you've worked with Quali, you've worked with Skills, you work with Chino XL, yes. You've worked with Keisha Cole, 
uh, Chingy, Chante uh-huh. Moore. That's a very wide wide range of people of, yeah. of artists. Um, is Chingy that, and Chino XL in the same room. That's a, <laughs> that's a funny uh, episode. I was like, they both start with the C, so yeah. we're good. Uh, is there a common, I guess, common like attribute that all these artists have that kind of draws you to them? Yes, actually. Yes. Believe it or not, because, you know, everybody's a fan of somebody and not a fan of somebody else. Believe it or not, everybody who I ever, who I've worked with is great at what they do and how they do it. You know, Keisha, Keisha is a very passionate songwriter. And she puts that passion in her records, whether you're a Keisha Cole fan or not. She's 100% passionate about what she does. Chino XL is a very passionate lyricist. He, he is great at what he does. Um, Skills is great at what he does as a lyricist as well. And he's a passionate songwriter. So I think everybody who have ever worked with had a passion and a want for their thing. Even a Chingy, where Chingy may not have the quote-unquote hip-hop credibility or whatever, but working with Chingy, we started working because we were working on a soundtrack for a movie. And I didn't know what to expect working with him because I wasn't really a Chingy fan like that. But he wanted to be better at what he did. He wanted to, you know, not just be the party guy, and he knew how to be a lyrical guy at the same time, and he knew when to dial it back and 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 fit the role, and he was good at that. Um, the top of that whole list is working with Will Smith, where people would tell me, "Don't do it. He's so corny." Uh-huh. But I've never seen anybody so passionate and dedicated to their work. If he wasn't, he still he wouldn't be the quote unquote Will Smith that we all know who that he is. So just because he's not Rock Him or Jay Z or whatever, that doesn't make him any less passionate and skillful at the things that he does. He would not have sold tons of millions of records. You know, even even the the, the album that we did which was, you know, up to this date, his last record, the single that I did, up to this date, his last hit, whether you were in the 50s, you know, when the record came out, everybody was in the 50 Cent and Jay-Z and all that stuff. We still had a number one record in 15 countries around the world because we were both passionate about the song we were making. And and so, so I think that is a common thread that all these diverse artists have in common. And I think that's what draws them to me and draws me to them. Because, you know, it's so funny. Um, and I'm not really, I don't, I don't like the name drop or anything, but I, I got to use this quote. I was out to dinner randomly, out to dinner with D.L. Hughley um, a month ago. And I'd never met him before. It was the first time meeting him. And he's like, you know, I want to tell you something about you as a producer. The one thing I noticed about you as a producer is that I can tell that you try to do your best job with 
anybody you produce. You know, just listening to music. You may not be Timbaland, Dr. Dre level or whatever, but you can tell that you didn't just give away a beat. And I think, you know, and I really I, I accepted it and I appreciated it and I never really thought about it, but it's the truth. And I think every artist that I've ever worked with, big or small, put their best foot forward. And we both put our best foot forward. And I, luckily, I've never had a, back to before, I never had a slacker section, a session. And, and that's what I appreciate. Is there a, obviously have a huge list of artists you've worked with, but is there like a bucket list of three artists that you hoped, wish you work with or um, want to work with maybe in the future? Well, one had to get off the bucket list. I definitely wanted to do a, a some sort of collaboration with Prince. That's that was always um, top of the bucket list. Um, then I met Prince. <laughs> um, and then um, <clears throat> um, I want to do a Black Thought record, or if you want to call it a Roots record. I mean, would you want to do? The entire band, or would you? Would it really just be a solo? I don't know if I would be allowed to do the entire band. <laughs> and I'm saying this very candidly because I personally know all of them, and one of my best friends is in the band. Two of my good friends, are in the band. so I can say that and not get in trouble. <laughs> um, but if Black thought if if Tariq was to do a straight up album, you know, like I like what he did with him in, in Ninth Wonder. I would love yeah. to do that one. Um. And that just feeds my need for quality. You know, it's not a chart-chasing thing. It's like a need for, like, I can walk out of the room like, it's something proud of. Um, I have, but I would like to do a public, a record that comes out with Jay-Z. Not for the Jay-Z fanfare, but for the fact that I've known this guy since 89. And it's like seeing the growth, seeing the progression, seeing um, where he takes records when he needs to take them to the places he takes them. And sometimes he takes the the mainstream route. I would love to do a, do a, a, a few records with him that actually make the cut. You know, like I said, I've done records that haven't made the cut. Um, Was there be a... Would would the record be a certain era, Jay Z, or I mean? No, it, it would be. I would want it to be Jay Z at however old he is at the time, telling telling things from his perspective of however where he's at in his life. Mm. Like I don't want to make no disrespect, but I don't want to make the DJ Khaled Jay Z record or the Migos Jay Z record. I'm never never want to make that. I want to make the record that. Jay-Z wants to make but doesn't need to make. That's the record I want to make. I don't care. We could both be two old men, you know, figuring it out. Right. You know, I, I would want to do that. And that's kind of what I always wanted to do with Prince. Like, I, you know, when I was a kid, I was like, you know, I always want to work with Prince, but I want to work with 60-year-old Prince. And it's crazy. Like, you know, he almost was there, and then he, he dies at 57. Right. But... I'm talking about as a 14-year-old kid listening to my favorite album, Sign of the Times, and I'm like, 
I, I want to work with Prince, but he got to be an old guy. He got to get all this has to end. All the, you know, Prince the pop star is just like him in the studio just wanting to just drop whatever he feels like dropping <laughs> because then that'll be a truthful right. session. It's not, you're not chasing a radio. And I had an understanding of that as a kid. So I think all the people I tell, I, I tell this man this all the time. I call up Big Daddy Kane and I say, well, when are we going to do an album? Just because, you know, I want to do a Big Daddy Kane album. Um, I want to do a Cool G Rap album. I want to do a Slick Rick album. Those are my idols. Right, yeah. Like, I want to do albums on them just for the sake of doing it. It's like, you know, Rick, tell me, just tell some stories, man. Like, we don't, I got some dope beats, you got some dope stories. You know, even, and even with Rick, it's a different situation because Rick is, Rick is a great producer. You know, Rick produced that first great album. You know, he, other names were slapped on some records, but Rick made those, those beats. Outside of maybe like a Bomb Squad beat or whatever, but maybe you have an idea of beats that you want to do and you just may need somebody to f- help facilitate and make the idea work. I'll do that. That's fine. Um, you know, so those are like my older generation bucket list people. I would love to work on a J. Cole project just because I appreciate what he's saying and how he's saying Um And you know what's so funny? I want to do a Takashi 6 9 record. I really want to do a 6ix9ine record, not because of all the fanfare. I want to make a legitimately dope record that the people, even the people that don't mess with him, could say, yo, this record is ill. I, that, that's just like a, a posturing thing. Like, okay, I just made an ill 6ix9ine record. And you, don't, you wouldn't believe it when you heard it, but when that thing drops, it's like, oh my God, what was... What were they thinking? I don't know. It'll probably never happen. But what I'm saying (laughs) is that's just like my weird moment that I want to do. And then there's a bunch of like, I guess my bucket list is getting long. (laughs) You know, I guess there's, I always wanted to do an Alicia Keys record. I always wanted to do one. Um, Mary J was on my bucket list. I scratched that. Uh, Who else, though? See, my, my artists are weird. Like, there's an artist named Feist. I want to work with Feist so bad. <laughs> like, most people won't even know who Feist is. Feist is this Canadian, French-Canadian alternative artist that is just dope to me. Mm. I love the Black Keys. I want to do a record with them. I love this other group called Alabama Shakes. I want to do a record with them. You know, just, it's it's all over the place. I'm, you can't pin me down there. <laughs> um. And I want to do a film score for a superhero movie. Anyone. I will body it. Now, that's when I start to brag. I don't, I don't brag about anything. Give me any superhero soundtrack. Good. Bodies on the ground. When did you get into that? When did you get into composing? And oh, Always. I always wanted to do it. And I, I think I fell into it by accident. I did a record for R&B artist Tweet. And... Um, a music supervisor loved that record and asked, would I be in, interested in doing records, you know, for some films and stuff? And I think the, the first, well, the first record that I did 
before that was this um, HBO movie called Dancing in September. And it, the soundtrack got nominated for an Emmy. I was like, oh, man, I'm about to catch an award and out <laughs> of nowhere. Um, and that's how I kind of got into it, but I was still approaching it as an artist. So I was just making Kwame records for that song, for that movie. But then the first official, official thing was um, the film Step Up. And... Um, I sat with the director and, and the music supervisor and they came to a studio session. And if anybody's familiar with the movie Step Up, the director, Anne, was like, um, we want to make the lead character kind of like you, if you really think about it. Like, you know, so that I was almost like a, I was pretty much like a consultant for Mario's char- character in the movie. And then they would give me scenes and then I started composing stuff for the, you know, for the scenes. And then from there, I was like, you know, I kind of, this is kind of dope. Because it's challenging work. It's challenging because making a record, you're just kind of on an open playing field. But doing films, it's like they give you a 10-second scene. And you gotta figure you got to figure it all out in 10 seconds. you got to do your changes. Like, for example, there's a Sandra Bullock movie, The Proposal. Sandra Bullock, Ryan Reynolds. And... Sent me this scene. And it's so funny because it came on TV the other day and it gave me like PTSD. <laughs> they sent me the scene. Sandra Bullock is in the forest. And it's her and I think Betty White. And they're in this forest. And she's supposed to be doing a fertility dance. So when they film it, the scene that I get is like straight raw film. It's nothing. She's just making up whatever at the time. She's dancing. She's singing stuff and she, off the top of her head start singing Little John. You know, she's just bugging <laughs> out. So they say, okay, we need you to put a beat behind that. We need like a, a, a tribal beat for this 15 second dance she's doing. I said, well, she's singing Little John. Can I just make like a Little John? No, no, no. We're not going to license that record at all. It's bad enough she's singing to the window, to the wall. I'm like, all right, well, and I'm thinking, how does Sandra Bullock even know this record? <laughs> so I'm making these beats, and I have, like, conga players in the in the thing, and we're doing it. And, and the way she's dancing, she's not on beat. So we have to look at her and make this music go fast, slow, you know, media, all in 15 seconds, send it in, just for when the movie comes out, it's the Little John record in the background. <laughs> So it's, it's weird. The other day, I hear her doing the dancing in the back, and I never saw the movie. So I'm like, "How the hell did you get that thing?" I was like, "Oh, the movie's on." That I, that thing took two weeks of my life. I will never forget that scene. I never want to hear it again. But the challenge is great. It's like, I love it. I love the challenge and the musicality that you could put into it. Simplicity. There was one thing. It was a, a movie called Beverly Hills Chihuahua. And it was so racist, man. Like, I felt, I'm glad I didn't make this cut. And the good thing is, if you don't make the cut, you still get paid. But they wanted me to make a beat and rap like the Chihuahua in a Mexican accent. And I did it. And after I did it, I was like, yo, this is the most racist shit I've ever done it, ever seen it. I can't turn this in. I can't do it. I can't do it. You know, um... That was my moral high point. But, you know, somebody else, you know, there was... it. I don't think it ever... The record, the movie came out with the things that they wanted. 
never took place. Um, and I think I am on that movie as well. Um, but that's the weird thing because you're getting you're getting direction from non musical executives to do crazy stuff. So that's the downside to it. But the upside is you're putting you're super challenging yourself. Uh, algebra times fifty of so it's 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 crazy. It's calculus music. It's it's real crazy. I want to ask you about Chuck D. But first, the what you just said about the uh, Chihuahua thing. Uh-huh. Um, as a producer, how much does lyrical not not just the the the, the flow of something of, of someone, but the, the lyrical content play a role for you? Um, are you supposed to not to put a not to be not to be so extreme, but are you supposed to care what the person's saying? It's or? my job to make sure that it's good. See, it's a lot of the difference between a beat maker and a producer. A beat maker hands a beat in and lets the artist run wild. A producer reins the artist in and makes sure that the artist is doing the best to their ability. So, if an artist has a, a rhyme and it sucks, you have to tell them it sucks. It's it's up to you to do that. Um, if you don't do it, the audience doesn't know, but the inside business knows that you're not a good producer, and you your work gets penalized for that. So it it plays a big role. And then on top of that, if you're not good, I'm not interested. And if I'm not interested in the studio session, I tune out immediately and then the work suffers or it's it, it no it work suffers at that time but then it turns into me having to make up for it by throwing a bunch of bells and whistles on the right. record and, and you know somebody can't sing auto-tuning and somebody can't rap right moving you know making sure their stuff is falling on beat and so the more the t- more talent the more interested I am um so when I told Chuck that I met you and mm-hmm. I sent him a text, yeah, I met Kwame. He's like, "Oh, boom!" Yeah. And then he said, "We used to call him the Prince of Hip Hop." Mm-hmm. Uh, one, did you know that? And two, what's your reaction? I think it's weird. I never thought anybody would think that. And I never, you know, even though I'm heavily Prince influenced in the back of my mind, but I, I got to give a, a a Chuck D story. Two, actually. Uh, that was my next question. Yeah. You told me to remind you. <laughs> yes. Two Chuck D stories. The first Chuck D story, it's a Chuck D slash MC Hammer story. When I first came out and had two records sold, for some reason, I had a chip on my shoulder like if I had sold $20 million. I do not know why. I felt that I was... I think it was a defense mechanism. Honestly, I thought that I was dope, but I didn't think anybody else would think I was dope, so I needed to act dope. And the first tour I was put on was a Public Enemy NWA tour. And Public Enemy, well, if you, anybody seen the Straight Outta Compton movie, that yeah. tour that they were on, I was on that tour. And it was Public Enemy NWA MC Hammer, Easy E. Um, and I remember being in the lobby of the hotel and like standing there and just like 
posing, like literally posing. It's so like corny, man. It's just, you know, and, and I remember my radio rep saying, yo, you should say hi to Chuck D and them when they come in and thank them for being on, letting you be on the tour. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm not saying hi to nobody. Kwame, man. I'm not going, <laughs> like 17 year old assholes. And the in comes Flavor and Chuck. They immediately come over to me. Oh man! And they give me a hug, and they're so gracious and ingratiating. And I'm like, "Here, are these guys, platinum-selling artists. I'm on their shit, and they're treating me like this." Right. You would think I would learn my lesson. <laughs> Literally, a couple of days later, same thing. We're in the we're in the radio station. MC Hammer is already in, like, he's doing an interview, and I'm next. And I'm a New York guy, so I'm super lyrical. If it's not Rakim, Kane, G-Rap, I don't want to hear it. Right, right, yeah. I'm never going to like MC Hammer. And then he has a record dissing Run DMC. I'm not, I'm not rocking with him. Oh, you should congratulate him. He just went gold. Like, this is before he went 20 times platinum. He just went gold. I'm like, oh, hell no. And I said that. I was like, no way. I'm never Hammer comes out and kneels. He's like, he gets on his knees and he's like, yo, Quam, we love you in the Bay, man. Yo, man, we love your records, man. We play it all, bump your records all the time, man. It's such a pleasure meeting you, man. And from that moment, humility has been my <laughs> middle name. I've never had an air about myself, but it was based on a literally two-day experience with Chuck and then hammer to totally bring me up to speed. And 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 whenever I see Chuck, it's always a great word of advice. Um, you know, uh Chuck was like the last thing I said saw heard from Chuck when he was he was telling me, he was like, Yo man, I don't have nothing to say, man. Just drop records. Why are you not dropping records? I'm like, oh, I'll produce all this. He said, no, man, no, you. Why are you not dropping records? What is wrong with you? And I said to myself, hey, you know what? I don't even know why I'm not dropping <laughs> records. But that stuck. And from that moment, I started recording. So, so, but the, the, the best story I have with Chuck was St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. And we were, we were farming there, me and Salt and Pepper, and I would always go to like these random high schools because I was of that age. So all the kids would know me. So I would go to these high schools. So I went to this high school in, in um, St. Thomas and they wanted me to perform and do a song. And I was like, nah, I'm not here to perform. I'm, I'm back on my bullshit. Um, I'm, here to, I'm here to just say hi and, and go. Like, I'm not, you know, you're not paying me to perform. And this one kid was like, you're not going to perform? <laughs> I was like, well, you know, Chuck D would have done it. Chuck D was here, and he would have done it. He did it last week. You you can't be like Chuck D. <laughs> and then all these kids were like, Chuck D would have done it. I was like, you know what? Give me that mic, man. You know, you're not going to have Chuck D stand me up. But, you know, it was back to the humility of it all. And and, and that's where I, I hold Chuck in a, secret, a, a, a special place. Because he just reminds me of being as humble as you possibly can, so you know, you know that's my 
Chuck D moment of the day. This is my last question. Uh, I know we've been talking for a while, so I appreciate this. Um, has your two things? Has your mission when you first 1979 first mm-hmm. started? Um, has your your mission in hip hop or just in music? Uh-huh. How has that how has that changed or has it changed since when you you know first started 1979 to being an MC, being a producer? To now, I don't think it's ever changed. I think I've had visions of grandeur at times. Like you know, I always wanted. I think that starting out, I wanted to be the biggest thing ever. I think most artists want to be that. Um, I thought that what I was doing was going to change the world in some way, shape, or form. But then the world did change and didn't change where I wanted to change. You know, it turned to something else. And I learned how to to adapt. Um, But the feeling is still the same. I think I'm still as energized as I've ever been and as inspired as I've ever been and curious about music as I've ever been. Um, And then on the flip side, and it's not a negative, I still feel like 100% an alien when it comes to the landscape of music. You know, I I still feel like the the outsider misfit guy. So I don't think... um, I don't know if my mission was to ever be the insider, but, uh, um, so those missions being the same thing or those outlooks being the same thing, I think has been a detriment and, uh, um, an asset detrimental because sometimes you have to get out of the original way you think of things or the way you feel about things. And if you keep feeling and thinking one way, you, stunt your growth um and i think sometimes that i don't i'm so busy in my musicality i don't know i don't see the growth that i've i've made and it is a lot of times where i need to check myself and then i look back at the landscape like oh shit i did all of that and i still feel like the kid in at 1979 i literally do so it's weird you know i don't because I don't hold on to to moments. I just keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And so so I think the mission has always been the same. And You know, the personal mission, you know, my mission was always to be like, I always wanted to live a comfortable life in the sense of not Bentley, Ferrari comfortable, I just want to be able to buy my comic books. I want to be able to buy all the vintage toys I like. I want to be able to live in the type of place that I like. I want to buy, be able to drive whatever car I like, and and it's never going to be something outrageous. Buy as much clothes as I like. You know, that's the juvenile aspect of it. But then it turns into, well, I just want to be able to make sure that my mother's getting older and that she has nothing to worry about. I want to make sure that my kids have nothing to worry about. In the event of grandkids, I want to make sure that they have nothing to worry about. At the same time as buying my comic books and my toys. <laughs> you know, so, and so when I look at all of that, I say, okay, I guess I got to be 
I got to make some kind of money to do that. You can't do that broke. So I want to be able to be successful enough to to take care of and 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 just be happy. Um so I think I'm on mission with that. Uh but at the same time there's another part of me that the mission the, the scope of the mission always changes. So it's like it's like it's like telescopes. I may start off with the little home telescope and now I have a Hubble telescope and I'm like, oh shit, I can go here now. I didn't even think I didn't think past Venus. I'm looking at the thing past Pluto now, you know. Um and that's what I really love about a musical journey. It's like you never know you, you never know where it's gonna take you. It's you, and that's so cool. And that, I think that's the coolest thing. If you it's good to have missions and plans, but you always gotta keep those plans and missions open because it you don't know where it ends because it can easily end very quickly or where it begins. And I, I honestly believe, and it's not trying to sound like morbid or anything. I'll probably never see the end of it. I probably will never experience the goal. And that goal might turn into something after I'm gone. And and you never know. Like I'm pretty sure Dilla sitting in his room making beats did not think or know that he was going to be the Dilla that we know. He didn't, you know, he knew that he his health was in question, but he didn't think he was not going to be here to witness how people appreciate him. You know, I don't think Fife understood that how much people appreciated Tribe Called Quest just because if they understood how much people appreciated, they would still be, they would have been together always. You know, but it takes the lack of health for Fife for them to even start thinking about it and the passing of Fife for it to really come together and come to a, a close. And and it's like you don't you don't think about that kind of stuff. You think Prince thought about well, I think he thought about it, but you know, I don't think he really thought about playing a concert in Atlanta and going home and dying in his elevator, you know right, what I'm saying? Right, yeah. You know, and, and now they're picking at his bones by, you know, his house is a, a daggone museum and auctioning off his shit and all that kind of stuff. He, he would have never wanted that to be the end of what he did right. or what he does. You know, it could go for anybody, Michael Jackson, anybody who, when they end, you never know what the real end result is. So it's like, you know, I just stay on course, man. I just try to keep as fresh as I possibly can. Don't sound like the grumpy old guy because I know I'm getting older now and it's like, I don't think so, but I know I am. And just keep it rocking, man. Try to do as much as I can. It's Kwame, MC, producer, legend. Thank you. Uh, Kwame, thank you so much for joining me at the library with Tim Mine and Cal. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. Thanks so much right. for doing this. Man. Kwame. Thank you.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.